0: All right, it's time for episode 48 of 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and today I'm thrilled to share my chat with Yifan Zhang, co founder and CEO of Loftium. Loftium helps home buyers afford the down payment and monthly payments on their first home in high cost urban areas. Customers simply rent out a spare room on Airbnb and split the proceeds with Loftium. What I love about this company is that it's helping lower the barrier to entry in home buying, a hurdle that I, along with many other 20 and 30 somethings, have felt firsthand. Yifan is no stranger to startups, having previously founded a another one and is using those lessons learned to make Loftium even better. But enough for me, it's time to hear from Efon herself. All right. Well, Yfon, thank you so much for being on my show today. I'm so excited to have you all the way from Seattle. Of course. I'm excited to be here. So let's start by talking about Loftium and what the idea is. Yeah, definitely. So
1: Loftium is my company and we provide down payments for a lot of people who struggle with that as the number one barrier to home ownership. In exchange, you agree to Airbnb an extra bedroom for 12 to 36 months after home purchase and share the income with us. Um, It's pretty simple.
0: Yeah, I love this idea so much. When Ben brought it up on my show a few weeks ago, I was telling him it's so genius because I already see my friends hacking the system to do this. Like my best friend just moved to San Francisco where prices are astronomically high with her husband. And they basically were begging me to be their roommate, just saying, you know, it'll be a mutual beneficial relationship. We'll split it three ways, which normally wouldn't happen when you're splitting with a couple and they'll get money for their down payment. But normally, you know, things don't work out like that. And I can really see the value of this because home ownership for people our age, just seems so far away sometimes when you live in cities such as Seattle and San Francisco.
1: Yeah, and that's really where the job opportunities are. So, you know, all the people that are moving to cities, really, this next generation is going to struggle with homeownership, unless you have parents that can help you with a down payment. But for the rest of the majority of people who are not in that situation, that's why law firm exists.
0: Right. And there's even something about, you know, I'll be 30 in six months, it feels... I don't really want to ask my parents for money just because, you know, they worked so hard to have their life. They should enjoy their retirement. If you don't even want to tap into that alternative, it's great that to see that Loftium is there.
1: Definitely. Yeah, with Loftium, I mean, you do um, have some short-term trade-offs. So you are, you know, committed to renting out an extra bedroom at Airbnb, but we think of it as a huge kind of long-term payoff because the financial difference of being able to own in your, say, 20s or 30s even versus waiting 10 years to save up that down payment is, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars actually over the course of your life. So we're definitely trying to help people Uh, get into the housing market when they want to, rather than, you know, 10 years after when they want to.
0: Yes, exactly. And, and, you know, you've been paying rent as long as I have, you just feel like you're throwing your money away and you don't really own anything in return. So it's great to see this, but I'd I'd love to know how the idea started. You know, it seems so obvious now when you talk about it, but why I wonder, like my first question would be, why was no one else doing this?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Our investors actually say it's a type of idea where um, when you hear five seconds later, you think it's crazy. And then five minutes later, you think it's a no brainer. Um, So Loftium was actually inspired by my personal experience. Um, My husband and I actually moved from San Francisco to Seattle, where he's from, um, because the housing prices were so expensive in San Francisco, we were looking to buy. And after purchasing our first home, we started renting out an extra bedroom on Airbnb. um, And I realized that one bedroom could actually pay our mortgage for the entire three bedroom townhouse most months of the year year, which was a pretty insane realization. And I also worked to get that one bedroom Airbnb process to be as passive as possible. So automating a lot of the processes. So the realization that this one bedroom had so much value kind of coincided with me having all these conversations with friends that were asking me how they could purchase their homes and just complaining about the down payment. So that's kind of the the genesis of the idea, you know, being able to predict this revenue stream and prepay it for the down payment. You asked you know, why doesn't this exist before? I think there's a couple of reasons. One is Airbnb, you know, started back in 2008, but uh, the data for this type of Airbnb is still relatively new. So we're just at a point where there's enough historical data that you can start making these types of, you know, 12 to 36 month predictions and being able to prepay that income. And I also think, you know, in terms of the regulatory framework, a lot of cities like Seattle are starting to clarify what does it mean, you know, legally, to Airbnb an extra bedroom in your primary residence. And most cities are starting to actually legalize this type of behavior because no one wants to stop you from renting out a bedroom in your primary residence. You know, the limits in legislation really come from people buying up, say, 10 plus properties, like multiple properties just to put on Airbnb.
0: No, that makes so much sense. You know, you I forget that Airbnb hasn't been around that long uh, simply because I'm an early adopter of it. I've been on the platform for so long now And I'm just such a a big fan of it. And you see people doing that already, buying a home and renting an Airbnb, but they normally, like you said, have to have a co-signer or get their parents to help them with the down payment. So I think you're really tapping into and creating a new market for people to be home buyers. Exactly. Um, and that's definitely what we're seeing.
1: I mean, we're only about three weeks after launch, but the home buyers we're working with are definitely newly activated. They didn't think that they could buy for years. So it's exciting for us to work with people like that because we really feel like we're making a difference. Like we're not replacing something else. We're not cutting into anyone else's business. We're really just making something
0: possible that wasn't there before. So I'd love to know this. Do people find their own houses or are you sort of a marketplace that is going to launch city by city where you know you have the listings and people come to your site to find it or they come to you basically to help them get the loan itself Yeah, so we don't provide the
1: mortgage. So you still get your mortgage in the same process that you would otherwise. And you can actually use Loftium's down payment on right now any for sale home in Seattle, as long as you know it has two bedrooms and it's moving ready, allows Airbnb. So you don't actually have to use specific homes that we suggest. That being said, we do showcase some homes that we think are pretty excellent for Airbnb. So those include townhomes that have kind of a private first floor or rooms that have uh, maybe an
0: ensuite bath, but you don't have to use Loftium just in the homes that we showcase. Got it. And so where do you see the expansion going? Do you have to then launch city by city? Since you said you're only in Seattle right now, like, what is your vision for the next five years of Loftium?
1: Yeah, so we, um, my co-founder Adam and I definitely wanted to create a very scalable business. And we looked at some other down payment solutions out there. And usually they're very local because they have to go and get approved bank by bank, mortgage bank by mortgage banking order to grow. So with Loftium, you know, we went straight to kind of the top in terms of the government regulators that define what types of funding can be used for a down payment. Um, mm-hmm. So we got approval to have Loftium's down payment be counted a valid down payment source just like a parental gift starting in Seattle but once we hit certain metrics here then we have approval to expand to more markets Um, and the ultimate goal is to have Loftium defined as a valid down payment source everywhere so that any mortgage bank can actually accept our down payment funding then you know we're just a typical kind of straight to consumer company anyone that wants to use us can get a down payment estimate
0: and receive a down payment from Loftium. That's fantastic. And on another aside, your site is absolutely beautiful. So similar to Airbnb, I think you see the value in having really nice design and pictures. Yes,
1: definitely. Not a lot of mortgage websites are very user-friendly. So I think uh, we definitely wanted to change that with Lockheed.
0: Yes, definitely. And so before we dive into you, my last question would be, you know, you mentioned you moved to Seattle for your husband, but what are your thoughts about growing a startup thus far in Seattle, especially in your space?
1: Yeah, um, it's been very interesting. So Seattle, I'm obviously new to the area. um, So I'm seeing everything with fresh eyes. I think Seattle is actually a great place, especially to start a real estate startup because, you know, Zillow and Redfin are here and it's really sparked a lot of innovation. There's a bunch of real estate startups here. That being said, there's not that many fintech startups. So we're kind of a real estate fintech mix. And that type of expertise, um, I've had to get more from the Bay Area. But you know, we moved from SF so our investors for Loftium are still based in San Francisco. So it's nice I get to have a little bit of both worlds. In terms yeah. of kind of the team and hiring, um, Seattle's been amazing. I think there's just, you know, great talent here. It's slightly less expensive than San Francisco in all aspects, like cost of living included. And it's it's a nice first market for Loftian because it's expensive, but it's not so expensive that only, you know, the, the very, very wealthy can own.
0: Yes, definitely. I think that's one of the pain points of uh, San Francisco. And actually, one of the benefits to cities like LA or Seattle, where you're close enough in proximity and can offer a very similar lifestyle should you need to go to the Bay and try to lure talent away. I think a lot of people are like, well, it's a cheaper cost of living, still a very outdoors lifestyle. And and to me, right, if a company that I really loved wanted to sway me, I don't think it would be that hard because it's, again, it's a lot less money from where you're living right now in the Bay, which feels like the most expensive place in the world. Exactly.
1: Yep. Um, yeah, it's interesting how many people, you know, when they're thinking about buying a home in San Francisco, go way out to the outskirts. Um, or mm-hmm. even entrepreneurs, right? Founding companies are now not really able to live in the city if they're not VC backed.
0: Yes, definitely.
1: And so you mentioned, you know, your husband's from Seattle, but where are you from? So I was born in China. I oh, came wow. to the U.S. when I was seven. So only my parents live in the U.S. The rest of my relatives are all in Nanjing, China. We moved to Indiana, of all places, when <laughs> we moved to the US. And so I grew up there before going to Harvard for undergrad.
0: We're in Indiana. This little town called Carmel, Indiana. Okay. Yeah, I just, well, I just finished (laughs) Chicago. No, I went to Indiana a few times when I was in my stint in the Midwest, but I have not heard of Carmel, Indiana. So (laughs) what brought your parents out from China?
1: Um, my dad was going to grad school. My parents are both landscape architects. Um, wow. So my dad went to Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. So I lived there for a bit. We moved to Indianapolis. Then finally, uh, my parents bought their
0: first home in Carmel. Got it. And so landscape architecture, is there any similarities you see between that and what, kind of what Loftium does? In is you know, It's almost a similar space, something to do with the home like that, <laughs> or perhaps I'm stretching a bit.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting because growing up, I had no interest in landscape architecture since both of my parents were in that profession. But well, my parents always really loved, you know, obviously gardening. And they, so I lived in apartments most of my life. Um, we weren't able to purchase a home as immigrants until I turned 12. So that was such a, uh, I guess, memorable experience for my family like going house shopping and then being able to own our own home for the first time. And I hadn't really really Realize this connection until someone mentioned it to me recently. But I think it was a pretty big factor in terms of how I thought about, you know, I always wanted to own. Like when I was in San Francisco, I went to these like low income seminars (laughs) to try to figure out a way to own in the city. And then, uh, yeah, and then in Seattle, as soon as we moved up here, I
0: wanted to buy. It is so funny, though, how you sometimes eschew what your parents are doing, but, you know, probably in the back of your head, it it always remains there as kind of as what you think adults do for a living stems from what your parents do.
1: Yeah. So when you
0: went to Harvard, what did you go to study? I studied economics at Harvard. Okay. And then so when did you first start thinking about entrepreneurship as a viable career option?
1: Um, So I had never thought I would even go into business. My parents obviously are not super risky people. So I thought I would go into something like policy or law. And then at Harvard, I just met a group of friends who are entrepreneurs. I got pulled into this entrepreneurship club and actually interned at a local VC in Boston, Flybridge. Um, So, you know, I just slowly started learning about this world. And looking back, you know, I'd always loved starting things. Like I started clubs and high school and college and started programs, but you know, being able to channel that into an actual business was uh, pretty late in the game for me compared to some other entrepreneurs. So what sort of things did you create when you were younger? Let's see. So I I guess I started this tutoring club in high school to help people, you know, with their classes and SATs. I uh, started kind of these programs for our friends to do random things in college, like build forts. and <laughs> Just completely random. I would just like start these activity groups for people. I guess I never really realized I could channel that into something that like was a career.
0: (laughs) I thought that was just, you know, for fun. But you know, Loftium, it doesn't seem like it's your first startup. I think I saw that you were named to Forbes 30 under 30 for PACT or Gym PACT. And so what was that? Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so right after graduation, um, I started a mobile fitness company, and it was my first startup, went through Techstars Boston, and I moved out to San Francisco um, for a pack. And it was such a learning experience. I think we hit on this idea of using financial incentives to motivate people that really, you know, uh, right when mobile apps were taking off, that was the right time to be in the fitness industry. And, you know, I made a lot of mistakes, a lot also like learned, made a lot of good decisions, but ultimately we decided to shut down Pact recently. Uh, That
0: must have been a hard decision to to make though.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We took off pretty quickly and actually got to profitability, but I think it was a big decision for me that I didn't want to just run a lifestyle company. Um, Mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to, you know, use the things I learned and build another kind of venture backed, very scalable, quickly growing company. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: So what did you, what is your biggest takeaway then this time around with Loftium, even though it's a completely different space, I'd love to know, you know, what you learned that you want to do different.
1: So I think this time, you know, Loftium is very different. It's a super regulated industry. I think you know, some of the lessons I learned from PAC were um, we definitely wanted to prepare for launch. Um, So uh, I did a lot of similar things to create a big um, kind of media exposure for launch. Um, But we hired much more experienced people, you know, made sure that the product was ready for launch um, and was able to capture a lot more value from that. And then I think you know, in terms of the learning itself, I think we created a really good culture at PAC, and that is definitely the case at Loftium as well. Um, one of the things that's maybe unique about San Francisco and the Bay Area tech culture is um, you really think of your, you know, you think that you can channel your passions into your day job, and that's not the case in many other places. You know, people kind of tend to separate out their passions on the side from their nine-to-five job. Um, so I think At Lofty and we're creating this culture where you can really be passionate about the thing that you're working on.
0: How does one do that? How does one create that culture besides look for people that are passionate about the space that you're working in?
1: I didn't realize how unique that was um, until I left San Francisco. But I Mm -hmm. think that really that prioritization really comes from the top to have kind of owners of the business, like co-founders that really believe in what we're doing as a company that kind of live our mission. Like Adam and I are both Airbnb hosts. And, you know, I run an Airbnb out of my extra bedroom. Um, So Mm -hmm. I'm personally involved in in you know living the loftium experience and then kind of encouraging people, you know, showing that you care about employees outside of work as well as like, you know, the things are that are directly relevant to the company. um, That's actually more rare than I realized.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think sometimes people get this culture idea in their head, even in San Francisco, where it's like create a place that people love to come to work, but they also do incentive structures, which I find utterly bizarre. Like, for example, one would be providing three meals a day at work. And in my head, I'm just thinking like, why would someone want to eat all three meals of their day at work? Like there's a difference between, you know, (laughs) loving your job and wanting to live at your job.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And like we have a very flexible type of um, system where, you know, if you like working alone in the mornings, you can do that at a coffee shop or outside of the office. Like we're pretty flexible as long as, um, you know, things get done that need to get done. So I think all of that comes from the top. Like you have to be ready to actually um, do that yourself as a co founder and also like accept that. Um, And trust that your employees are going to do the right things.
0: I totally agree, though, that culture comes from the top. And it's been such an interesting year in technology for culture, considering everything that's been happening with Uber. And you realize that even at such a massive startup, you know, the culture does come from the top. And I think starting that really early and being cognizant of that will just be so beneficial for you down the line instead of having to change it later on, which is what a company like Uber is struggling with now.
1: Oh, yeah, I think it's so hard down the line. You know, we talked about culture a lot at Loftium and we definitely are trying to build a diverse company. Um, we have a great gender ratio. There's, you know, obviously always more that you can do <laughs> at a company. But I think the way that I think about diversity at Loftium is I really want people with different personalities and ways of thinking to be able to belong at Loftium. I, I told the team, I think of it as, you know, we're the United States compared to a country like France or China, where you can be different from each other. And that's not what defines you as a loftium teammate. Uh, what mm. defines you is kind of the way that you think about the world, you know, your, your kind of passions, the way that, you want to live your life versus you know, who you are or like physical attributes or any any other or even personality attributes.
0: Yes, I agree. And I think you can be banded together, but diversity actually is a selling point. And it's funny, I think diversity on a team and, and having a female leader attracts more diversity as well. I think it's self-selecting after a certain point. And you see companies now wanting to be more diverse, but if you're a woman and it's an all-male company, Do you really want to be the first one there that's, you know, quote unquote, the women like the woman point of view, I think it's nicer to easy and easier to attract talent where it's a non-issue because diversity is already baked into the culture.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's really beneficial. I mean, when you're trying to do something like Loftium that's never been attempted before, um, you really benefit from having all types of eyes right on problems and solutions. Um, so that's that's definitely something that I see at
0: Loftium. Yes, I agree. And so one thing you mentioned before was that you did the Techstars Boston program. You know, what were the benefits you saw to doing the accelerator? And did you consider an accelerator this time around? Uh, it's interesting because one of our investors, um,
1: Chris DeVore from Founders Co-op, um, actually runs Techstars Seattle. He did ask us if we wanted to do the cohort um, here in the fall. And I, I thought Techstars was amazingly helpful my first time. You know, I knew nothing about technology or running a startup so or fundraising or pitching. Um, so I felt like it taught me a lot of the, the skills. Skills, like the basic skills of how to be a founder. But I think the difference this time is both Adam and I felt a little bit more experienced with startups. Like we felt like we could execute, especially right at the beginning. So, you know, we kind of found investors that would be partners to us, but also give us a lot of space just to be able to execute the company.
0: No, that makes a lot of sense. I think also once you find product market fit, it's better to hit the ground running. And if you can't, Really see the value of it. Um, it could be a distraction. In a lot of cases, it could be beneficial, like I've heard from people on this show, but I think they're also a lot earlier than you are. I think Techstars people um, and YCE alumni I've talked to as well maybe hadn't even closed their seed round yet when they were going through it. And so it was a different time.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Chris approached us earlier before we were able to raise our round and, you know, um, get any of the approvals to be able to do Loftium. But I think the idea was just pretty strong in our minds, um, you know, the down payment need, the solution of using rental income seemed pretty clear. And the amount of pivoting we'd have to do is more tactical rather than the the exact idea.
0: So everything, you know, sounds very like it's going amazingly so far, but I'd love to learn what your biggest challenge has been.
1: Yeah. Um, so we got a ton of interest from home homebuyers uh, over the last few weeks. The biggest challenge is definitely learning how to work with this very early stage um, recently activated home buyer. Most of the mortgage and real estate industry, uh, I think, works with people that are a little bit farther down the line. Like they may have just more savings, or slightly older. Than, you know, um, they've been thinking about this for years. Um, with us, we are activating this home buyer audience that I guess is, is much more inexperienced um, as mm. home buyers. So we've been trying to put together the right content, um, set up the right amount of structure for them so that they can feel more comfortable kind of going forward and going through all the steps that you have to do. Um, Because real estate is a pretty complicated transaction.
0: It's funny you say that because now that that you mentioned it, it makes so much sense, right? You might be attracting people that come to your site and think, oh, I should really think about buying a home. And you're their first touch point or second touch point. Whereas historically it would be, you know, they've done so much data on their own before coming to you, so it's a lot about education, I'd imagine as well.
1: Exactly. Yeah, we thought that, you know, we would be able to slot right into the existing real estate market, but what we're realizing is that we're activating this new type of home buyer. Um, mm. so about how to work with that and how to. Direct people to the right resources when we are their first point of contact. Um, It's a good challenge, but um, definitely requires a lot of things to figure out.
0: Yeah, I think that is a great challenge to have. I think it signifies that you're tapping into potentially a new market. And when investors think about TAM, I think they get the most excited about markets that don't really exist yet. You're creating a market. Yourself, just like Airbnb and Uber did.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it, it's really interesting because I think a lot of investors are very divorced from the needs of our home buyers. Like the fact that twenty thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars makes a big difference. Um, lots of investors were like, "Does twenty thousand dollars actually matter?" And I think for you know most of our team and and our audience, like that's a resounding yes but we were able to find great investors. DFJ is our lead in San Francisco and, um, mm-hmm. you know, they definitely really get the problem.
0: I, I'm almost laughing about that as $20,000, a lot of money. I'm like, how much out of touch with reality can you be <laughs> to someone mm-hmm. who's, uh, I mean, I'm 29. I'm like, Oh my God, I would love to have $20,000 right yeah. now. I just finished <laughs> grad school. So, uh You know, I think I'm millennial rich because I'm not—I don't have any loans. So I'm like, oh wow, I'm so rich. I'm—I don't have any debt. (laughs) Yeah, it's so. (laughs) It really doesn't mean I have any money. It just means I have no debt. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean that the debt definitely plays into um, you know who's able to buy now versus later, Um, and Mm -hmm. that also has to do with you know uh, I think parents being able to pay for school. Like my parents paid for my schooling, which was very very lucky. I also got a very hefty financial aid package from Harvard, so that helped. (laughs) But but I think even you know being debt free is kind of a luxury in this generation, um, which is sad to say. No, it is true.
0: It is yeah. I think for us, especially we graduated the same year of college, people are quick to forget how bad the recession was when we were graduating. And I think, you know, a lot of people our age are still very scarred by that. You know, it was really hard to even get hired at the first time. So a lot of people went back to grad school to even take out more and more loans. And so I think a lot of people are inundated with debt, even though they might have a great, I'm such a business student. I'm like, they have a great MPV. Like my friend who's a doctor, but he's like, you know, I had loans from college, loans from medical school. I might be really rich in 10 years, but right now I, I don't have that much liquidity. Yeah, it's so true. Um yeah,
1: we see so many people with pretty high budgets or they're spending a lot on rent right now and they're able to afford that, but their savings are relatively low. You know, if you have 10,000, 20,000 in savings, um, it's really hard to think about owning. Whereas, you know, if Lakshmi can step in, you know, these people are stable, they have stable jobs, they have high incomes. Um they really just need to overcome that down payment barrier.
0: Yes, definitely. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about that. I'm going to switch now to my fun questions to end up the interview. So I'd love to hear about another Seattle startup that you really love. And and just for reference, you were Ben from Pioneer Square Labs answer. So that's how we got connected. Ah, got it.
1: Uh (laughs) No pressure. I mean, the easy thing for me to say, is we're sharing an office actually with this other startup called Fly Homes. Um, they're also in real estate. Uh, they uh, just launched this very interesting guarantee program where um, you know they're actually able to kind of compete with cash offers for home buyers. Um I won't say too much about it, but you can ask them about it. Or or look at their website. I think they just announced a,
0: a fundraising round. Oh, great. Very mysterious, but you know, I'm intrigued to say the least. That'll be great. I'll, I'll definitely have to look them up. Yeah. And so the last question is, if you could interview one founder, who would you most want to interview and why? <laughs> this might be too selfish, but Brian Chesky. <laughs> oh, no, that's
1: great. It's probably too selfish, but I'm just so curious about, you know, the early days and like the personal stories of trying to convince investors about this like crazy idea. Even now, you know, a lot of investors don't still don't get um, Airbnb, especially the private room sharing uh, economy.
0: So I'm sure that must have been fascinating. I totally agree. And it's funny because a lot of people on the show end up saying Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and I don't know if we've had anyone say Brian Chesky before. And I am, I mean, again, I'm such a fascinated Airbnb user. And it's so funny because you think of Airbnb now as like one of the pinnacle of design. And I love that they're a design-led company. I worked at a design-led company as well. And I really love being um, having a designer be one of the founders. But you remember that their initial design was kind of awful, but yeah. it, you know, when you're finding product <laughs> market fit. <laughs> like the old logo was so ugly like 3d it was pretty bad and then there was all that press about the new logo like what did it look like it's just they've been through so many changes and there's so much struggle with you know getting shut down and regulation in cities that i hear now that they're designing these buildings in florida themselves and it's just Mm -hmm. they're doing so many interesting things that i think he's an amazing pick
1: yeah definitely yeah i mean i think there's a lot of great execution in other businesses but being able to create something that had never existed before and overcome all these kind of social barriers right around sharing in your
0: home um i think that's pretty fascinating definitely well thank you so much ifan for being on my show today it was i love talking to you yeah great talking to you too i'm so glad that ben connected us All right. That's a wrap on this week's episode of 52 founders. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter at 52 founders, because you don't want to miss one of the final four episodes. I'll see you next week for episode 49.